So the symptoms, unfortunately, are very generalized, and that's the reason a high index of suspicion is needed. But the most common symptoms that people will come up with is that you know they have either gained weight or not able to lose weight. The second symptom is that they are very very tired or very fatigued, and the third symptom is that they will feel brain foggy. And the way people will describe this brain fog is that you know they will just not able to concentrate long hours into things, or they're forgetting very very small things. or they just feel that sometime their memory is not as good as before and then the gut related symptoms are very common too that either they have constipation diarrhea bloating stomach cramps or they have hair related problems that they have hair fall or hair thinning issues hi i'm dr morgan nolte founder of zibly as a geriatric physical therapist i saw the heartbreaking effects of insulin resistance At Zivli, our mission is to help you prevent and reverse insulin resistance for long-term weight loss and disease prevention through a low insulin and inflammation lifestyle. Each week on this podcast, you'll learn simple, actionable tips to lose weight, keep it off, and get healthy. If you're ready to create a body and life you love, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of the Reshape Your Health podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Morgan Nolte, and I'm really excited for today's episode. Per usual, we are going to learn a little bit more about thyroid health, specifically hypothyroid and Hashimoto's disease. My guest today is Dr. Anshul Gupta, and he's a med- medical doctor, uh, board certified in family medicine, with advanced certification in functional medicine. peptide therapy and he also did a fellowship in integrative medicine. He's worked at the prestigious Cleveland Clinic Department of Functional Medicine as a staff physician alongside Dr. Mark Hyman, uh, who's big in the functional medicine space, and he believes in empowering his patients to take control of their health and partners with them in their healing journey. He now specializes as a thyroid functional medicine doctor and helps people reverse their unresolved symptoms of thyroid dysfunction. So Dr. Gupta, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. I know I'm going to learn a lot from you today and I hope our audience does as well. Thank you so much for having me over here. I think you're doing an amazing job sharing all this great information with all the people out there so it's an honor and privilege to talk about this topic of hashimotos and thyroid today thank you and it's a really common topic so before we get too into the details i want to just start with your story how did you get interested in medicine and then specifically in thyroid health absolutely so by training i'm a, a family physician so after completing my residency into family medicine i started doing uh work in a private clinic and just few years into my private practice i started having my own health struggles i started gaining weight even though i did not change anything in my lifestyle i was very tired to the point that during my lunch break i used to take naps just to function through the day by the end of the day you know like i was kind of brain foggy not able to concentrate not able to assimilate more information and then i started having this horrible stomach pain the stomach pain will just hit me randomly throughout the day doesn't matter what i eat doesn't matter what i do it will just come and hit me and stay with me for sometimes you know like hours and nothing i would do it will not get better i initially thought maybe i was just too stressed out maybe i was just overworked so that's the reason it's acid reflux i started myself on acid reflux medications but it was not getting better 
I added more medications for like muscle spasms and, you know, like other things, nothing was working. So I thought maybe I'm not a smart physician. I need to take help from smarter people. So I started doing, you know, like these specialists, gastroenterologists, you know, like allergists and all those people, they did tons of testing, blood work, ultrasounds, endoscopies, everything was normal. They had little, no idea what was going on with me. They added even more medications, just blindly throwing medications at me, just thinking that that might be helpful, but nothing was working. I was only 32 years of age at the time, and I had no idea what was going on with my life and how to take control of it. I had completely lost hope at that point of time. So then somebody introduced me to functional medicine. They said, well, people who do not get better go to functional medicine and they get their answer. So I said, okay, well, I need to know more about it. So I started looking into functional medicine. Finally, I got trained into functional medicine and then applied the concepts of finding the root cause of my problem. After finding the root cause, I made a stepwise plan of changing my lifestyle, taking certain supplements. And within one month of implementing the protocol, my stomach pain completely went away. Within six months, you know, I lost 40 pounds in my life. I was off all medications. My brain fog was completely gone. I had so much mental clarity and my energy levels were so up that I even participated in a 5K rugged maniac. And for me to do that was a big thing because I was never an athletic person. So that was a big achievement for me. Mm -hmm. So that was a big aha moment in my life. I said, well, this is powerful. Just making a few changes, not getting answers initially to finding answers and completely changing my life. I need to share this with people. So I got this opportunity to work at the Cleveland Clinic Functional Medicine Department. They were looking for somebody to who do research in this model of care. So I joined over there and just a couple of months into my practice over there, I realized I was attracting these middle-aged females who had exactly the same symptoms as mine. And one thing was common. They all were suffering from thyroid and Hashimoto's disease. And they were doing each and everything their doctors were asking them to do, but still not getting better. So that prompted me to complete my research into Hashimoto's and thyroid disorder. What was exactly wrong? Why are they not getting better? So after doing my research a couple of years, I started developing a protocol so that I can implement in people to see if that works or not. So I implemented that protocol in like several females who were going through this disease saw phenomenal results. All of them saw an improvement in their quality of life. Their symptoms significantly got better. Some of them were even able to get off medicines. A lot of them, you know, their antibody levels and the thyroid numbers improved significantly. So that was again another aha moment in my life. I said, well, this is powerful. I need to share this with people. So I wrote a book about it called Reversing Hashimoto's so that I can share this message that and hope that, you know, females with Hashimoto's and thyroid disorder can reverse and can feel better. Yeah, well, I have a couple of follow-up questions right away from that. You mentioned a lot of middle-aged women. Is Hashimoto's more common in middle-aged and is it more common in women? That is true. Yes. So Hashimoto's, the most common gender uh, is the middle-aged females from 30 years of age to 60 years, 60 years of age. And definitely female gender, it is much more common. But in the last decade, we are actually seeing younger females who are just hitting their mean arc or they're starting their periods are also being diagnosed with Hashimoto's. And plus, some males are also being diagnosed with it. So it is actually now we are seeing much more people being affected with it. Why, why do you think that's happening younger and younger? Is it more of an awareness or is it 
how our lifestyles have changed? Why are younger people being diagnosed with it? So that's where we have to understand why autoimmune diseases happen, right? Because Hashimoto's is an autoimmune condition and we still are figuring out the exact reasons for it. What we know currently is that any autoimmune condition, it's an interplay between the environment and the genetic pool of our body. Now, genetic pool definitely is not changing because that takes a long time to change. But our environment is changing at a very rapid pace. And our body cannot, you know, like uh, change at such a fast rate. So that's a bigger reason that we are seeing autoimmune conditions at a younger uh, population, a lot of that. So that's one reason. Then second of all, you know, like all these things that we get exposed to, especially like what we call as different hormones, you know, especially for females, what we call as xenoestrogens, which are being exposed uh, to the females that definitely, again, is a big reason that we are seeing an increase in autoimmune conditions at a younger age also. So I want to put a pin in that, the xenoestrogens, which I think we'll get to maybe when we're talking about some causes. But will you just really quick explain what is Hashimoto's disease that we're talking about? And then I'm sure many people are wondering, okay, what's the difference between hypothyroid, which maybe they have, or a friend or relative has, and maybe they're taking medication and Hashimoto's disease. So let's start there and then we'll dig into the root causes. Absolutely. So Hashimoto's disease is an autoimmune condition of your thyroid gland. What happens in this condition is that your body starts making antibodies And these antibodies start the slow destruction of the thyroid gland. So that's what Hashimoto's. Now, ultimately, after the thyroid gland is destroyed, that leads to hypothyroidism. And that's what most people get diagnosed with. So hypothyroidism is a state where the body's thyroid is not able to keep up with the body's demand of the thyroid hormone. And that's what we call as low thyroid. Now, there are various reasons of low thyroid or hypothyroid and Hashimoto's is the number one reason. Now, a decade ago, when we first came to know about low thyroid condition, at the time, the number one reason was iodine deficiency. That was the number one reason of hypothyroidism. And that's the reason world over, we started this campaign of adding iodine to our salt, right? And now we thought that actually adding iodine, the complete reversal of hypothyroidism will happen, and we will not have any cases of hypothyroid. That did not happen. We actually have much more numbers of hypothyroidism right now as compared to a decade ago. Because now the number one reason of hypothyroidism is Hashimoto's disease. Research is very clear. More than 70 to 80% of females who have hypothyroidism, the reason is Hashimoto's disease. The problem is this. Most people don't even know whether they have been tested for Hashimoto's or not. Because still the conventional medicine way of checking the thyroid is just checking for hypothyroid. They actually do not order tests for Hashimoto's disease. So how, first of all, if we're backing up just a smidge, we're talking about thyroid hormone. What is the role of the thyroid hormone in the body? So what what effects does that hormone have? So actually to sum up this answer is that without the thyroid hormone, there'll be no life. So that's how vital it is. So literally each and every organ of our body needs thyroid hormone. We only think that thyroid hormone is a metabolic hormone that regulates our basic metabolic rate, which causes us to produce energy or to maintain our weight or to maintain our temperature. But what people don't know is that each and every organ needs it, starting from your brain. 
your brain has thyroid receptors. If you do not have enough thyroid hormone in the body, then you get brain fog, then you get memory issues. When we are actually uh, small babies, a fetus in our mother's womb, if we do not get enough thyroid hormone from our mom, then we do not develop our brain at all. So how that is the vital importance of thyroid hormone for the brain health. So that starts on the brain health, then it goes to the gut health. A lot of people with thyroid disorder have gut issues because we have thyroid receptors in the gut that again helps us to propel, you know, what we call as peristalsis movement for a gut is needed, you know, like for the thyroid is needed for that. Then, you know, for maintaining our body's temperature, maintaining our skin health, you know, thyroid is needed. Even for maintaining fertility, thyroid hormone is needed. For maintaining our menstrual health, you know, again, thyroid hormone is needed. For maintaining our hair health and skin health, thyroid hormone is needed. And so I can just keep going on and on, but basically from top to bottom, your thyroid hormone is needed for everything. And is that why you were having such varied symptoms when, you know, you had the brain fog, you had the weight gain, you had the severe stomach pain, and that's because the thyroid hormone has diverse effects throughout the body? Exactly. And that's the problem that, you know, most people with thyroid disorders will have multiple symptoms. And that's actually the unfortunate thing because most of them are females. And, you know, we as medical community always try to label females that, okay, they are just stressed out or they are kind of creating these problems in their head. They're depressed or they're anxious. So this problem is not real according to the medical community a lot of times. But in reality, we are not doing the complete testing. And in reality, we are not looking at the disease in a proper fashion. And that's the reason they continue to suffer from symptoms, even though, you know, like they might be having a problem, but nobody is recognizing it. Okay. And then one more question, just kind of on the etiology of it. Do you see the Hashimoto's or low thyroid increase after menopause in women, or do you generally see a decrease? Is there any trend there? Increase. Okay. And so why is female, that? Yeah. So in females, whenever there is a big shift happening in the body, which as I said, when they're starting, you know, like a, a menstrual period, that is a big shift. The second shift happens if they do get pregnant and they deliver a baby, that's again, a big hormonal shift. And the third shift is menopause. All of these three major shifts, we see an uptake or increase in Hashimoto's. So definitely several females after being hitting the menopause, they actually do get diagnosed with Hashimoto's. The reason is that body doesn't like stress. And whenever there is a big shift in the hormones, that's a big stressor for females body. And that definitely kind of causes Hashimoto's. Plus, all these protective hormones, especially estrogen, is a very protective hormones for females that take that you know gets completely taken away in menopause, and that is again a reason that you know we see Hashimoto's and autoimmune condition happening a lot of times, just a couple of years into the menopause. Okay, all right, that's good to know. So, what are the major symptoms of Hashimoto's where people? need to be, they need to be aware of them so that they can have this communication with their doctor. They can find a functional medicine doctor who's versed in this. What are those primary symptoms that would differentiate it from, like you mentioned, depression or anxiety or, you know, psychosomatic things? What, what would be the symptoms you would tell people to watch out for? 
So the symptoms, unfortunately, are very generalized, and that's the reason a high index of suspicion is needed. But the most common symptoms that people will come up with is that you know they have either gained weight or not able to lose weight. The second symptom is that they're very, very tired or very fatigued. And the third symptom is that they will feel brain foggy. And the way people will describe this brain fog is that, you know, they will just not able to concentrate long hours into things, or they're forgetting very, very small things, or they just feel that sometimes their memory is not as good as before. And then the gut related symptoms are very common too, that either they have constipation, diarrhea, bloating, stomach cramps, or they have hair-related problems, that they have hair fall or hair thinning issues. These are the most common symptoms that I have seen, you know, that are related with Hashimoto's disease. So if you have any of these things, you know, and plus you have mood changes that you're feeling low mood or depressed or anxious or stressed out, then definitely you need to get checked for Hashimoto's disease. Awesome. Okay. And I'm guessing that checking for Hashimoto's is different than just checking your TSH, your thyroid stimulating hormone, your T4, your T3, what, what should physicians be checking for Hashimoto's? Absolutely. So you correctly pointed out. So even though like, you know, several females are going to their physician, the only test they get is TSH. So first of all, getting T3 and T4 is very important so that you know the complete thyroid functioning of your body. And then you need to ask for Hashimoto's disease tests, which are checking for antibodies for your Hashimoto's. These are two antibodies that can be checked. One of them is called TPO, which is the thyroid peroxidase antibodies. And the second one is called thyroglobulin antibodies. So once, and this is easily done through any regular lab. And the same blood work that you are doing for your thyroid test can also check for thyroid antibodies. And then if your results are back and if the results show that these thyroid antibodies are higher than the reference range, which is mentioned by that lab, that is diagnostic of Hashimoto's. You don't need any other advanced testing to prove these presence of antibodies proves that you have Hashimoto's disease. Okay. So they are not present for someone without Hashimoto's, correct? So they would not be present for someone with just general hypothyroid? That is correct. Okay. So I think that's a really good overview of what is it? How do we test for it? What are the symptoms? Thank you for those clear explanations. Let's talk about root causes. What are the big root causes of Hashimoto's? And as we mentioned offline, this also correlates or is applicable to just low thyroid, hypothyroid too. Absolutely. Uh, just one plug, I will, actually, I would like to kind of tell people so they understand it. So first of all, like, you know, whenever a person gets diagnosed with Hashimoto's, right, conventional medicine has no treatment for it. And that's the reason they're not checking for it. The only treatment they have currently is offering the medicine called levothyroxine to plug in the low thyroid. So let's say like a female or any person goes to the regular doctor, the TSH is within normal range. They do ask the doctor to check for Hashimoto's and they do have antibodies. The doctor will say, well, you have antibodies. I cannot do anything about it. Come back in six months. We'll check the blood work. We will wait for your thyroid to be destroyed. And once it is destroyed, then I'm going to get you that medicine uh, until the time, nothing can be done because that's what the training says. I'm not saying that's, you know, like the doctors are doing intentionally this thing because I'm also a medical doctor. Yeah. That's the training they have. There yeah. is no medicine currently for it. But in functional medicine, what I identified was that 
if we do certain things, if we find the root cause or the, the reason behind Hashimoto's, then we can lower those antibodies, we can safeguard the thyroid gland, and there is a high chance we can even reverse it. And that's the reason we need to know this root cause approach. So the, what I identified from my research was that there are five major root cause or what we, can, what we can say reasons of why people get Hashimoto's disease. So these five major root causes, the first one is what we call as food sensitivities. Now food is medicine, but wrong foods can definitely damage your thyroid gland and can trigger Hashimoto's disease. And this is what we call as food sensitivity. Now, this food sensitivity is different than food allergies. And a lot of people don't know the difference. The food allergies, most common allergy people have is peanut allergy. They eat peanuts, they blow up like a balloon, they have shortness of breath, they land up in the emergency room. That's food allergies. Food sensitivity is when you consume gluten, your body says, hey, gluten, you are not my enemy, but I don't like you to be here. So it produces very small amount of antibodies. but and these antibodies start a slow destruction of your thyroid gland. But because they're so small, you do not get much symptoms initially. But just imagine day in, day out, for weeks, for months, when this damage happens at a considerable level, that's what ultimately leads to Hashimoto's. So that's what is food sensitivities. So that's one of the root causes that more and more people are developing food sensitivities towards different foods. And that is triggering Hashimoto's. The so second just, one is just a second before we move on. You mentioned gluten. Are there any other major food sensitivities that you see with your patients? Yes. So gluten, then second is dairy. The third one is soy. The fourth one is corn. Mm -hmm. And uh, sugar is not a food sensitivities, but that is again a major reason a lot of people can get triggered with Hashimoto's also. Why is that? If it's not a, a sensitivity, why can sugar trigger Hashimoto's? So sugar, what it does is that, you know, like uh, whenever we consume plain sugar, whether it's white sugar, brown sugar, or even like in a form of honey or agave or maple syrup, what it does is that as soon as we consume it, it causes a big insulin spike in our body. And we know that the insulin spikes are the reason of causing inflammation. So what again, and anytime we get an insulin spike, our inflammation levels increase in our body. And again, our body has this anti-inflammatory mechanism to tackle that inflammation. But when we are having it time and again, day in, day out, that mechanism fails. And that causes in, rise in inflammation in the body. And that inflammation again leads to triggering of Hashimoto's. Interesting. Okay. Which I think is really important. If anyone's, if anyone has studied inflammation, there's so many causes of inflammation, which I'm guessing we're going to be getting to. Um, now we've also interviewed menopause experts on the podcast and they talk about your estrobolome, which is kind of in your gut and it changes after menopause. And so I hear a lot of times from women who are postmenopausal, I used to tolerate dairy. I used to tolerate gluten but I can't anymore. Do you have that experience with your patients as well? Absolutely. I always tell our body is constantly changing. And for females, definitely after menopause, it's kind of just like a completely different body. I am not a female. So that's why I cannot attest to what they feel like. But, you know, being a medical doctor and talking to like thousands of females, I can certainly say that the body changes completely. The gut microbiome changes to an extent uh, to the point that, you know, like the way they are processing food is very different. 
So definitely food sensitivities are much more common after menopause as compared to what they used to be before. And I had one more food related question on oxalates. I feel like the the book uh, Toxic Superfoods has really brought oxalates to the public eye. Do you talk on oxalates as a, as a cause of inflammation? Do you treat them like a food sensitivity for people? What's kind of your view on oxalates and inflammation as it relates to thyroid health? So oxalates are definitely like, you know, uh, another thing that, you know, we are knowing more and more about it. Um, that definitely can be one of the reasons of inflammation. But the problem is this, you know, like those, some of these oxalate containing foods are really healthy for the body too. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, like we end up like, because we are already removing so many foods from these Hashimoto's patients. And if you remove those oxalate foods too, then they literally end up with very limited diet. Mm-hmm. So I tried doing it, you know, for a while, I experimented with it. I saw very similar results, whether people include oxalate foods or not. So right now I'm at the crux is that, you know, unless we are not seeing an improvement in a person, I'm okay with oxalate containing foods, the healthy ones of it. But yeah. let's say if you order an oxalate panel for somebody and their levels are really very high, then definitely we ask them to be cautious about those particular foods. Okay. And then just in case anyone is new to the topic of oxalates, will you just kind of list a couple high oxalate foods that are are healthy, but maybe for certain people wouldn't be optimal for their health? I think the main ones, which I know about is spinach, you know, like, you know, which definitely can be high in oxalates that, you know, we get into trouble with most of the time. And that's the most healthy food, you know, like at this point of time that comes into my mind from the high oxalate ones. I also think almonds and raspberries, I do a lot of almonds and raspberries in my diet. So I'm crossing my finger that my gut forever and always loves Greek yogurt and dairy, almonds and raspberries. I'm hoping we'll see. We'll see how things change over time. Um, Okay. So I think that's a really good explanation of the first root cause of Hashimoto's, which is food sensitivities. So what's the second main cause? The second one is nutritional deficiencies. So your thyroid definitely needs a lot of different vitamins and minerals and micronutrients to function and make thyroid hormone. And what we are seeing is that even in general uh, public or general people are deficient in a lot of vitamins and minerals. And that, again, that definitely triggers uh, Hashimoto's disease. Now, the main reason is that even though we might be eating the most healthiest diet, but our food itself is low in nutrients as compared to before. So there was a recent study done which compared our crops or our food from 1980s to 2010. And what they saw was that the same crop and the same food, the nutritional content, especially mineral content of the food from 1980s had higher mineral content than 2010. So that is very, very disturbing that even though we are thinking that we are eating the best food, the healthiest diet, but that food itself is low in a lot of vitamins and minerals, especially the minerals, because we know about a lot of vitamins, but we don't know the importance of the minerals. And these minerals are the ones which affect your thyroid gland. So that's the reason that, you know, definitely a lot of people are low in these vitamins and minerals that trigger Hashimoto's disease. So which one specifically? So if people are unfamiliar with it, a mineral is a type of micronutrient, just like vitamins. We need them in small amounts compared to macronutrients, which are the carbohydrates, the proteins, the fats. Um, So regarding minerals and thyroid function and vitamins, we can throw that in as well. What are the biggest ones that we should be focusing on to be sure that we have optimal thyroid health? Absolutely. So they are zinc, 
then there is selenium, then there is magnesium, then there is iron. Okay. Perfect. And I think if people, I think electrolytes are awesome. What are your, your take on supplemental electrolytes for thyroid health? Cause there's magnesium in a lot of them. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, sodium, potassium, you know, like those are great, like, you know, another electrolytes that we should be aware of. Now, obviously, like, you know, depending on the condition of the people, like, you know, if somebody is like, you know, older age and they are very high, have blood pressure issues, we don't want a high sodium diet, but absolutely potassium is one of the other mineral, which we see that a lot of people are low into. So again, making sure that we are getting enough potassium is very important. And electrolyte drinks are again, great options, especially if you're doing intense workouts or if you sweat a lot, you do lose a lot of electrolytes. So I think uh, electrolyte drinks, you know, especially um, who are good quality, like not filled with sugar, but if they have all the other minerals in good quantities can definitely be a good way to replenish them. Yep. But also watching, as you mentioned, the sodium content, um, I really like the LMNT brand. They have really yummy electrolytes. They are a little bit higher in sodium than if you were to like do a DIY. So if that's something you're interested in, look at that brand, but also consider your own medical history from a blood pressure standpoint. Um, Okay. So the second one is nutrient deficiencies. It was fascinating to hear that the nutrient density of foods is going down. Is that due to mineral depletion in the soil or what, what does that do to? Again, multiple reasons are there. Definitely a nutritional content of the soil is going down. And then the farming practices are very different from what they used to be. So that again, you know, like, you know, causes it. And plus, you know, like the more amount of pesticides, organicides, and all those things that we sprays, we use again, that decreases the mineral content, you know, of our our food. And then the GMO crops, right? The GMO crops are made to produce, give us higher produce. Whenever Whenever we increase the produce, then definitely that mineral content also goes low. So these are all the reasons that's the reason that, you know, we feel that causing the mineral content to go in the current food. One thing that comes to mind is raspberries. So if you're just looking at raspberries at the store, if you look at the organic raspberries compared to the non, they're always going to be a deeper red and smaller. Um, And so what you're getting is you're getting, I think, more micronutrients compared to the bigger variety, which has less and a little bit more of the starch and sugar content. Is that kind of a good visual for people to understand how food can be different? Like a cup of regular raspberries may have less micronutrients than a cup of organic raspberries. Absolutely. You know, like, you know, uh, if you have like lived for 50 years on this earth, then, you know, if you go that when you were a kid and, you know, like uh, if you look at the food, then absolutely. We did not have these like big oranges or big apples or like, you know, uh, big plums, you know, like when we are growing up. Right. So definitely the size has suddenly like grown up and, you know, obviously, you know, like it is, it cannot happen as short amount of time. So you are correct that, you know, we have everything, you know, like we have made in a bigger size and obviously like, you know, uh, the produce is very hardy. That means, you know, like, you know, the insects and the pests cannot destroy them. Right. So we are having a bigger produce, but then definitely it comes at a cost. And that's the reason, you know, like our mineral content is low because, you know, the, the plant itself cannot pump so many minerals, you know, it, it is more focused on just getting them bigger and bigger. Yeah. Because of how they've kind of modified the seeds over time. Yes. Interesting. All right. So we have food sensitivities. 
We have nutrient deficiencies. What's the third main reason for Hashimoto's? The third main reason is stress. And this stress can be anything. It can be physical stress. It can be emotional stress. It can be mental stress. It can be spiritual stress. It can be hormonal stress. So the way you define stress is anything that is putting a pressure on your body and is external to the body. That's basically stress to the body. So that's the reason, you know, how we talk about one kind of stress, which females goes through, which is these hormonal shifts. That's kind of a stress for the body, right? And then the second stress, obviously, that everybody is busy in their life. You know, like we have work-related stress. We have so many responsibilities that we have to take care of. We have always these performance things that we have to take care of financial stress. We just went through this pandemic. That was a big stressor. Relationships, bad relationships, divorces, even childhood trauma, right? That can be hidden and that can kind of, you know, uh, cause uh, Hashimoto's at a later stage in the life. So these are definitely big stressors. Each and every person, whenever they get diagnosed with Hashimoto's, I tell them, go back to your life like two or three years and tell me what kind of stress you went through. And invariably, everybody will be able to label one big stressor that their body went through in the last one or two years before they get diagnosed with Hashimoto's. Yeah. Okay. That's really good insight. And something that I stress so much is stress management, because it's so much easier to follow through on the lifestyle changes that we'll probably talk about when your stress is dialed in, when your sleep is dialed in. So um, I think it's also important to recognize those different types of stressors. I, I think metabolic stressors as well, like a high sugar diet, a lot of alcohol substances, all of those will increase your stress in your body. So that can also contribute to Hashimoto's. All right. What's number four? Number four is toxins. Yeah. Okay. And, and we that's have... like a Pandora's box right there. So let's open <laughs> it up. <laughs> Yes, you know, there are so many different kinds of toxins. So the oldest toxin that we know about is heavy metals, lead, mercury, arsenic, aluminium, you know, they have been present since the human life has been there. And we know for a long amount of time that they're not good for our body. And definitely Hashimoto's disease, they have research studies, which proves that lead, mercury and arsenic can be very detrimental for a thyroid gland and can cause Hashimoto's. So that's the first set of toxins. The second set of toxins are the mold toxins. Now, again, this is newer toxin that, you know, we came to know about in the last decade only um, that is affecting, you know, our human health. And definitely they can affect the thyroid health also and cause Hashimoto's disease. Now, these mold toxins are coming definitely from our immediate environment in our houses, in our workplaces, or like, you know, our vacation houses or vacation places, these mold toxins are living over there and affecting our body and can definitely lead to triggering of Hashimoto's disease. The third set of toxins are the environmental toxins. That's where the organophosphates, all those insecticides, pesticides, all the spraying which is happening, all the chemicals we are using around our environment in our cleaning, on our faces every day, all the makeups we are using. And more and more toxins are being poured into our environment each and every day. So all of those toxins do kind of affect our thyroid gland and are responsible for increase in Hashimoto's as we are going through. Okay. And I wanted to ask how, so I'm big on understanding the how, and how do, how does exposure to these toxins trigger Hashimoto's? So a couple of mechanisms. So the number one mechanism is that, you know, like whenever we get exposed to toxins, they go into our blood. Now, thyroid is like a sponge. 
each and every small amount of toxin that is circulating in the blood ultimately gets deposited in the thyroid gland. So again, after weeks and years of exposure to these toxins, they'll reach a toxic load into the thyroid gland. And that's where, again, they're kind of causing a break into our immune system and that leads to Hashimoto's disease. So over second, time, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so that's over time, definitely that happens. Uh, that's one mechanism of doing it. The second thing is something they call uh, an issue with our immune system called SIRS, which is Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome. So whenever our body gets exposed to toxins, these toxins again kind of interferes with our immune system and directly affects it and turns it into uh, uh, against our own body. Basically, you can say that, you know, it increases inflammation in the body and the inflammation never stops. And again, because of perpetual inflammation ongoing in the body, again, that kind of causes Hashimoto's disease. Okay, so maybe over time, the thyroid, which acts like a sponge, soaks up these toxins and then you can handle so many of them and maintain opt, you know, okay levels of thyroid um, hormone. But then over time, if you get more and more accumulated, then your body starts to have a, a larger um, immune response to it. Is that kind of a good way to explain it? Yes, that's correct. Which is probably another reason why we're seeing it later in life because they've had more decades to accumulate those toxins. Mm -hmm. Okay. Before we go on to the next one, I wanted to ask you about detox. So that is like a, such a buzzword detox and people have probably never even thought of this. It's detoxin, like detoxification. What it like, is there a way to get these toxins out of the thyroid once they're lodged in there? Yes. You know, uh, so, but detoxification is a very complicated process. Now, what we are doing, you know, like uh, with a lot of people talking about different ways of detoxification or kind of selling different products for detoxification, I've seen, you know, people getting worse with it because, mm -hmm. you know, like we do not have a complete understanding of the detoxification. This, there are different phases of detoxification. All of them needs to be optimized for properly and safely getting these toxins out from our body. And people, what they do is that they just kind of go on this detox and they feel worse. And a lot of times they have been told, well, it gets worse before it gets better. And yeah. sometimes they actually hurt their body or harm their body and land up in the hospital. So I always tell people, just do not do a detox on your own. It is very important to work with a professional who knows what kind of toxins you have and how you're detoxifying them. Just kind of blindly doing a detox can harm your body. Now, that being said, obviously, you can do things to lower the burden of toxins in your body. That is perfectly fine things to do. But going on a proper detox, you know, that needs to be done unto a professional. Yeah, I agree. I've talked with one person on the podcast before about that. And I was shocked at all the different steps. I think it, I think that she was a mold specialist and a Lyme disease specialist. And so that's kind of where we were talking about the detox steps and my I probably looked like a deer in the headlights because so much of it was new to me. And I'm like, if you're not working with a practitioner that really understands all of the phases of how these toxins get out of the body, um, it's not going to work. So don't waste your money on over the shelf, quote unquote, detox products. Um, what are some of the ways, or maybe, maybe we'll get to that later, um, to reduce the toxic burden in the body. So if we can't go through like a formal detox, are there ways that we can reduce the toxic burden? 
Absolutely. Um, so let's start with, you know, like the most common toxin that people get exposed to, which is, you know, through our food, right? Because obviously, if you're eating the regular food, you know, like there's so much toxin that come along with it. So if it is a possibility to eat organic foods, then people, people should be trying to do that. Obviously, depending on the situation, whether it is available or whether it's too costly, then at least you can go on a website called ewg.org that actually releases every year a list of top 10 foods which have the highest amount of toxins in them. So at least those foods, if people can kind of buy organic, that will be a good start for people to do that. The second place is looking in your environment. All the cleaning products that we are using in our household, they are all toxins, right? So it is very important to look at those products and change them into a more natural versions of cleaning products so that again, we can do that. The third important thing, especially for females, is all the skincare products that we are using definitely are overburdening our system. Research, there was a research study done that, you know, before a female leaves a house, she has more than 200 skin products that she uses in different kind of, you know, ways and stuff. And just imagine the toxin that you get exposed to them. So again, looking at your skin products, looking at safer alternatives and natural alternatives. Again, this website, which is the EWG, which is the Environmental Working Group, is a great website that actually gives you cleaner alternatives. I'm not saying that don't use skincare products, you know, like definitely use them, but use better alternatives. And this website lists those alternatives. Okay. And then looking at your water, right, you know, also making sure that, you know, you have a good clean water, maybe using a water filter, you know, is a good option for using that. So again, toxins can come from that water. The other reasons and other places that, you know, toxins can come from, especially mercury is from your fish. So again, I'm not saying that you should not be eating fish. What I'm saying is that making sure you're eating wild caught organic fish that again has lesser amount of mercury in them. So that is another way of reducing this burden of like, you know, uh, mercury toxins, you know, around your body. Okay. Uh, I think those are all great ways that people can start like just cleaning up their environment. That would be great way to reducing the burden. So from an intermittent fasting standpoint, we know about autophagy. Does intermittent fasting to the level where you get into autophagy, so maybe like 18 to 24 hours minimum, does that help with toxin removal at all? It can. Now, intermittent fasting actually is a two-edged sword, you know, for Hashimoto's patients. Mm -hmm. So what happens is that, you know, we have seen that fasting or intermittent fasting that does affect your thyroid gland. Because just imagine thyroid is a metabolic hormone, right? So it sends signal uh, to the body to kind of go in and go into different metabolic states. So whenever a body is going through this starving state, right, the thyroid hormone levels do go slightly low. Obviously, once you start feeding, then the, you know, the thyroid hormone levels, you know, go back to normal again, but in Hashimoto's disease, this flexibility might not, you know, work at the optimal level for most people. So we can do intermittent fasting, but I don't recommend going beyond 16 to 18 hours for Hashimoto's patients on the regular basis, because that might not be the best choice for them. It's just so, not yes. flexible enough to, to downregulate and upregulate. Yes, you okay. know, like so we have had research studies that you know people who have gone longer fast from more than 18 hours or 24 hours, their thyroid antibodies sometimes actually spike up. Not ha doesn't happen with each and every person, but there is a chance. And the problem is we don't know who is going to happen. 
so that autophagy like you know that point unfortunately they they might not be reach that place uh, for hashimoto so they have to rely on other ways of doing that interesting i would wonder um you probably don't know the answer to this but i would just wonder on different types of fasts so if it was more of a modified fast where they had or i've i've heard it called nutrient sparing fasts if they still had antioxidants um some stress supplements maybe a little bit of protein. I'd be really curious if a study was done on a dry fast versus a nutrient sparing fast and how the antibodies reacted to that. So so again, you might not reach full autophagy or get all of those benefits, but maybe still getting some, I don't know, just kind of thinking out loud there. Um, Okay. So personal question here, do you have a favorite brand of cleaning supplies to reduce the toxic load? Because curious we're looking to update ours so do you have a favorite brand that you go to i don't because this is my wife's work (laughs) she is like you know a freak in that you know place and then she will shop online for different products and uh, i don't know actually which products that we use for cleaning supplies but she does it sometimes she'll make her own you know like with some vinegar and with some lemon and other things and some baking powders baking soda and things but I think she does buy a lot of those products, you know, like I think she goes to Whole Foods and uh, some of the brands from there, but okay. I don't know the brands actually. I was going to say, you're, you're not looking through your cleaning stuff. So ewg.org, we're going to link that website up um, and up-level, up-level your stuff to reduce your toxin load. Okay. What's the next cause? So the last call is, uh, last cause is infections. Yeah. So again, this is again a big one. Uh, several different kinds of infections have been linked to Hashimoto's. The number, most common one that we know about is Epstein-Barr. So reactivation of Epstein-Barr virus, which we all also call as infectious mononucleosis, have several research studies saying that that can definitely cause Hashimoto's disease. Then the second one is parasites in the gut. The most common parasite that we see in the gut is blastocystis. Now, this is the parasite which most people don't know about, but this is the most common parasite seen world over. In some countries, they don't even call it parasite because it's kind of endemic. In United States, you know, it is not endemic. So if we see that, then definitely it can cause problem. And again, there are a couple of research studies which show that blastocystis can actually trigger Hashimoto's disease. Then presence of candida or chronic candida infection or overgrowth of candida can again modify your immune system and definitely uh, can cause Hashimoto's. Several other viral infections, even we have seen that, you know, getting an infection from the COVID-19, there is an increase in Hashimoto's incidence that we are seeing, you know, because it does change your immune system. Then we have other uh, infections like Lyme disease, Bartonella, Babesia, those chronic infection, again, modifying their immune system can also lead to Hashimoto's disease. So definitely these chronic infections can also lead to Hashimoto's. Like I'm putting myself in the listener's shoes. And I think at this point, Everyone's like, oh man, I probably have Hashimoto's. I should go get my antibodies checked. Um, And then they might be a little bit overwhelmed. Like on where do we start with treatment? So you kind of said that you developed a protocol and a system that you can test on people and repeat on people. Um, And we have something called our Zivli Habit Hierarchy, which is a similar principle where it's like, there's certain things that we want you to implement first, second, third, fourth, and so on to make the other things easier. So what is, if someone comes to you and they are, they have Hashimoto's and maybe they want to get off of medications, what system do you implement first? Like, where do you start first with this? So the first of all, definitely finding the root cause or causes 
again, this is an important thing that most people need to understand is that there is generally not just one root cause that is playing a role. It is most commonly two plus root causes coming together and playing a role. And that's what most people do not understand. And once they find one root cause, they stop over there and just address it and they do not get better. So first of all, we need to address or we need to find all the root causes which are playing a role, which is definitely a not an easy approach uh, because a normal person, a you know, testing, obviously, you know they, they don't even know. Yeah. Is that just a lot of testing, a lot of intake? What have you been exposed to? Is that kind of how you determine all those root causes? That's true. So again, obviously, clinical history is very important, you know, because I've done this for a long time. So definitely by doing a clinical history, I can almost identify like the major root causes to that. But sometimes some things are hidden and we might not be able to. But through the clinical history, we're able to find the root causes. I think, you know, like, and then we start people on lifestyle changes because it doesn't matter what cause you have. Definitely lifestyle is a base for everything. So I think, you know, like diet plays an important role. So in our diet, we remove foods which we feel are inflammatory to the body. In that aspect, we know we already spoke about gluten, dairy, soy, corn, sugar, caffeine, alcohol, processed foods, processed meats, all of those things, you know, because they are just overburdening the body. They're overburdening the thyroid. We remove them from a person's diet. And then we introduce foods which are thyroid healing foods. So in that aspect, you know, vegetables are great. Non-starchy, colorful vegetables are great for the thyroid. Your thyroid needs all of those antioxidants, all of those vitamins and minerals, which, you know, comes with these, you know, like all these different variety of vegetables. Now, again, I want to address one myth, you know, which a lot of people have is that cruciferous vegetables, a lot of their doctors have told them do not eat cruciferous vegetables because they are bad for their thyroid. It's a, this is an age old myth. And the myth actually came with, you know, there was a research study done, which was on rabbits. When they were like given too much of like, you know, these cruciferous vegetables, what they saw was that they were not able to absorb the same amount of iodine from their gut. But they were given definitely so much cruciferous vegetables that even a normal human being cannot consume. And at the time, the number one reason of iodine deficiency now we have research studies which show that these cruciferous vegetables are really good for Hashimoto's disease because they have antioxidant compounds, they have sulfurophane that helps with detoxification. So please eat those veggies. Those are very important for Hashimoto's. Then comes the good quality fats. Again, in the last decade, we have told each and every person that go on a low fat diet, fats are bad for you. What you forgot to tell people is that these are good fats and they are bad fats. So definitely stay away from bad fats, but we need good fats. 60% of our brain is fat. So if you do not have good fats, you know, brain doesn't work, right? So definitely, you know, like good fats should be included. Fatty fishes are great. Avocados are great. Nuts and seeds are great. Chia seeds, flax seeds, olive oil, coconut oil, all those are good fats. We definitely want them to heal your thyroid and reduce inflammation in the body. And the third thing is good quality protein. So again, proteins are building blocks for our body. They actually make our immune system. And if our immune system is weak, it is cannot fight off those infections, cannot fight off inflammation. So good quality proteins, you know, whether you're vegan, vegetarian, or you eat animal products, all of them are important. Again, chicken, fish, turkeys, you know, organic as much as possible. If you are a vegan or a vegetarian, eat those lentils, your beans, you know, again, your seeds, your nuts, all those things are great, good quality protein that your body needs. 
and then last comes the gluten free grains you know quinoas and brown rices you know and sometimes oats those are also fine to eat but if you do this kind of diet you know like that definitely is going to be helpful for your body especially for your hashimoto's disease and i think that's a cornerstone that each and every person if they do have hashimoto's they should start doing it right away yeah i have a couple follow up questions there um you did not mention soy products for um hashimoto's as a as a protein source if someone's a vegan or a vegetarian which i wanted to dig into a little bit more so why did you not mention soy products there so soy is very interesting you know like you know we have conflicting research whether soy is good or not and i think it all depends on the quality of the soy okay because majority of the soy that we are consuming at this point of time is gmo soy okay and we have seen that this gmo soy is definitely our body cannot consume it and it is very inflammatory to our body and that's the reason you know we we most of us you know like would like our patients to stay away from soy what we have seen also soy is that soy also has phytoestrogens right you know so for menopausal women some amount of phytoestrogens are good but if you are child bearing age or if you still having estrogen in your body we are seeing estrogen excess in majority of the females yeah. so this phytoestrogen actually adds to that estrogen which is already excess in the body and that's the reason again that causes more inflammation and you know flares up hashimoto's disease yeah that so was Oh, go ahead. So that those are the multiple reasons that you know we want people to stay away from soy and not have as that as a primary source of the protein. Yeah, it it makes me think of uh, the xenoestrogens, which we touched on at the beginning, and I thought we'd maybe circle back around to those. Will you touch on those just a little bit more and how those can impact the thyroid? I think they're fascinating. Absolutely. So again, like, you know, there is phytoestrogen and those are xenoestrogens. So, you know, like female bodies like normally produces estrogen, which is really good. But then we have all of these chemical products around us, especially coming from petroleum, coming from plastics and things. And they have what we call as xenoestrogens, which are very similar chemical structure as our estrogen. And whenever our body get exposed to these xenoestrogen, our body absorbs these in our bloodstream. and then actually they uh, they actually increases the estrogen pool in our body but because they are not natural they actually start harming our body an excess of estrogen you know has linked to be kind of you know having excess of inflammation in their body and causes total hormonal uh, breakdown or imbalance that causes pcos symptoms menstrual issues that again kind of causes imbalance in your insulin hormones your adrenal hormones and definitely impacts your thyroid So that's the reason these xenoestrogen exposure is the number one reason that we are seeing females are getting menstrual periods at an early age as compared to what it was before, and yeah. that's also the reason that we are seeing an increase in autoimmune conditions, especially in females. Yeah, I think it's really important. I mean, I think going to perfumes, even you know, like I've stopped using perfumes. I'm just you know sorry if i'm stinky sometimes <laughs> or sorry if i don't have a nice floral scent to me but i'm not going to use perf- perfumes anymore that's a simple switch and um, i wanted to touch on something else because when people heard you say what to eliminate i'm sure that they were like oh my gosh you know and i'm just wanting i want to reiterate like i believe that certain foods aren't inflammatory for certain people i could be wrong but that's just what i think So I still eat dairy. I still eat small amounts of gluten, but if you if you move towards more of a whole foods diet, it really 
eliminates that anyways, not eliminate, but can, um, like you mentioned the gluten-free grains, but it took me a long time for the caffeine. Like, so I wanted you to touch on caffeine and alcohol, because I think in today's day and age, those are crutch substances that people use to function throughout their day and to cope with stress and to, um, fit into social circumstances sometimes without the thought of how is this really affecting my health? So will you kind of zoom in just a little bit about caffeine and alcohol and how that affects the thyroid? And uh, absolutely. So first of all, like, you know, addressing this point that, you know, which you uh, beautifully pointed out that, you know, like the, the, the same diet or the same food might not be a problem with everyone. So what, what, and again, I don't recommend people to just kind of stay away from everything for lifelong. And that's the biggest question that many people start working with us. Oh, so I cannot eat gluten ever in my life. I said, there is nothing that ever in our dictionary. What I say is that why not, if you're feeling miserable, if you're not feeling good, let's do things which might be useful. So for a very short amount of time, we eliminate these foods and then we try to reintroduce them. And kind of ask people. And again, we are not talking about eliminating it for six months because that's a long amount of time. Then your body forgets those foods. We're talking about four to six weeks. Four to six weeks, remove these foods and then do a reintroduction and see how your body does. If your body says, well, this is perfectly fine for me, then those foods might be good for you. So that's that's the then important aspect that, you know, I forgot to mention that just don't go on these pre's which people just eating five foods you know, like, you know, for oh, forever. Right. People, people do that. People feel very restricted and then it's, it's, it affects them psychologically. Like what the heck am I supposed to eat? I can't eat anything. Exactly. So that's the reason a lot of people come to see me on very, very restrictive diets. And I tell people, no, we need nutrition. We need, you know, food. So absolutely. So don't fear food. Uh, food is your friend and enjoy it. So that's definitely important. Now, coming to caffeine and alcohol, because they're not really foods, right? You know, know. and as you said, they're definitely in, uh, and a cultural thing that we have introduced, you know, uh, world over now these days. And uh, the reason caffeine and alcohol uh, are bad is that because basically they overwhelm our system. Whenever we drink caffeine, we feel good, right? But this, that's the biggest kick that our body gets. But that each and every kick that we get, we also get that, you know, like a drop uh, in our body, especially in our energy and things. Our body doesn't like, you know, being in a yo-yo situation that, you know, suddenly it gets a kick and then suddenly it goes down. That is where, you know, our body's resilience breaks down. So that's what caffeine does. You know, it gives you a, give us a kick, you know, by kind of, you know, secreting those chemicals in our body that gives us a high. But then as soon as those chemical, chemicals are gone, we kind of, you know, uh, fall and we see a trough in that direction. So that's what caffeine is not good. Now, alcohol, you know, like is basically a poison for our body. Whenever we consume alcohol, your body, your liver has to work excessively to detoxify that alcohol, change it, and then eliminate uh, from our body. And that definitely overwhelms our liver. That's the reason fatty liver is very common. And in thyroid patients, fatty liver is already there. The liver is already not working. So alcohol definitely doesn't help them and overburdens their liver. Now we have already so much toxins in our body. And what people do not know is that we only have one detox system. Doesn't matter whether you have lead or mercury or mold or alcohol, they have to go through the same detox system. So when the detox system is already overwhelmed and you're adding more toxins, you're breaking it even more. So it doesn't help your body. So again, 
you know, like uh, removing those things for some amount of time or even like removing them permanently would be good because your body functions at definitely at a better level. Yeah, I, I just I I keep saying this in podcast interviews, but alcohol keeps coming up. And it's so I think that we've uh, become desensitized to alcohol consumption in our culture and in our society. And it's very natural to have a drink with a friend and then have another one and another one. And because it's social and other people are doing it and we don't recognize this is a toxin that I'm putting in my body. And if you choose to do that, fine. Like I, I'm not abstinent from alcohol, but I've drastically, drastically reduced it in my, in my lifestyle. And I'm so grateful that I have, you know, I think that it was just not necessary. So if there's like a super big occasion, I might have a small something, but it's not a, yeah, I'll have a, I'll have a drink with you tonight. You know, it's just not, not part of my lifestyle. So we talked about root cause identification. We talked about cleaning up the diet part of the lifestyle. I don't mean short-term diet. I mean, like, what are you habitually eating? What agrees with your body? Um, We have just a few minutes left in this system of healing for the thyroid. What else would you include in that process? So uh, definitely other lifestyle changes, which is the stress management, you know, like, which is very important, very important key. A lot of people like, you know, uh, do not follow this particular step. And I feel that each and every one of us need it, whether we feel whether we are stressed out or not, our body is stressed out. So mm-hmm. developing you know, like a, a regimen, you know, a schedule for it doesn't have to be like a couple of hours, just 10 to 15 minutes, you know, of that deep breathing or meditation or journaling, any of those things are really very healing for our body. And our body needs that break. So definitely include that, you know, on the regular basis is very important. Sec- the next thing is body movement. You know, I'm not talking about like high intensity exercising, but any kind of body movement that you can do, walking, jogging, running, yoga, anything that you can do is very important again, because again, that reduces inflammation, improves the thyroid functioning. So these are the basic things which I think each and every person should be doing it. And then beyond that, you know, identifying those root causes and then working on them in a stepwise manner is the key over here. In that aspect, sometimes you need advanced testing to know exactly what is going on with the body. But even without testing, it is very important to know all the root causes and identifying them and working on them. And it takes time, you know, like, you know, we are not in a rush. This did not happen in a day or two for you. It took years for your body to broke down and develop Hashimoto's. So give yourself at least a few months, you know, or more than that to heal your body. Totally. Absolutely. I think I love that we're wrapping up on the lifestyle change part of it because that's what we teach inside of our program, inside of our Zivli program. It's like there's a huge lack of education on lifestyle changes in, in regular medicine. Doctors don't have the time to provide this education to their patients. And that's really the bridge that we serve. And I think in our culture, people assume that there's just a medication And they don't understand how powerful these simple routines of healthy nutrition and movement and stress management and sleep are. And so thank you for emphasizing those. I really appreciated that. Um, I know that people are going to want to look into you and work with you if they're experiencing Hashimoto's. So first off, if there's anything else that you wanted to share, go ahead. And then secondly, let us know where we can learn more about you. Absolutely. So I wanted to give this message to each and every person who is suffering from Hashimoto's or thyroid disorders, that there is hope for you to get better. 
do not let anybody tell you that you have to live this life which is limited by hashimotos or thyroid disorders there are things you can do today to get better if you're not feeling better there is something out there which you are missing so that's where look for those reasons and look for those causes and you will find solutions so there is definitely hope for you to get better perfect and where can they find you Absolutely. So we are on social media. I have a actually very active YouTube channel, which is uh, the name is Anshul Gupta MD, where we you know we share again short videos related to thyroid, Hashimoto's, things that people can do today to feel better. Uh, then obviously we are on Instagram. People can follow us over there. Again, our handle is Anshul Gupta MD. My website is a great resource for people because we have an active blog where we share a lot of relevant information, which is research based. Our website is anshulguptamd.com. Again, uh, different people learn through different ways. So we share information in all different ways through blogs, through books, through videos, through audios. So wherever people want to learn about, they can find us. Perfect. I have really enjoyed this interview. I really appreciate your simple, understandable explanation of things. And I wish you the very best. Thank you so much. Again, thank you so much for having you on the show. It's a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Reshape Your Health podcast today. To learn more about Zivli, our online course and coaching program to reverse insulin resistance for long-term weight loss and disease prevention, check out our website at www.zivli.com. That's Z-I-V-L-I.com. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a rating and review on your listening platform and share it with a friend. I'll talk with you at the same time, same place next week. Bye for now.